From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, July 2nd. The Pat Creek Fire in the LaSalle Mountains reached 90% containment yesterday, holding steady at just under 9,000 acres. As firefighting work nears completion, another team is analyzing the severity of the burn. Jess Clark works for the U.S. Forest Service and is with the Burned Area Emergency Response Team. The multidisciplinary team made an initial assessment of the Pat Creek Fire, and he joins us to tell us about what they found. So the Burned Area Emergency Response Team, you know, this might be the first time that some listeners are aware that this team comes in. I know I certainly learned about it um, a few weeks ago. Um, can you tell us first off what this team is, what it does after it's safe to, to come in and sort of analyze the severity of a fire? Yeah, so we all know the obvious danger that occurs when a fire is burning, um, an obvious emergency situation there. But unless you've lived through a fire in its aftermath, you might not realize the danger that still exists or persists after the suppression team is gone, the incident management team. So our objective is to show up to fires that burn on Forest Service lands and say, okay, what are the effects of the fire? And so our job is to go in there and identify critical Forest Service values, um, infrastructure, property, life and safety concerns, cultural and natural resources, like archaeological kind of things, you know, how are the natural resources going to respond from this fire? And we assess those values and see, are there new threats to those values? And if so, then we'll do a risk assessment and kind of say, um, what's the threat of something um, happening to these existing values that we've identified? And can we mitigate for those uh, new threats? That's what our objective is, to kind of try and and make sure that uh, all the assets and critical values that we try to manage can be taken care of and attended to later. And how does the team go about this? You know, is it is it a lot of field work? Is it um, more tech work? Um, what can you tell us about uh, the process of analysis? Sure. Yeah, it's a mixture of technology and field, boots on the ground, if you will. Um, we, we use specialists that are experts in soil science, hydrology, archaeology, fisheries, for example, if that, that issue uh, exists on a fire, it doesn't on this one, but we all come in with our, our backgrounds, our scientific backgrounds, and we look at the burn scar and look at those critical values and uh, make an assessment based off of our education and experience. But we also use satellite imagery to help take a first cut at the severity of the fire. So we, we actually get satellite images before the fire and after the fire, and we can um, map the severity of the fire, um, at least the, the first cut, using space-based technology, which is a real cool technological advance to how we used to do it years ago when it was all by hand. You know, I know the U.S. Forest Service at one point, you know, said that the report from the Bear team might be available this week or in the coming days in the near future. Is there anything that you can share about uh, the team's initial assessment of the Pat Creek Fire? Yeah, so our first approach is to map what we call the watershed response. Um, so what's going to happen at the next damaging rainstorm, for example. And we're entering monsoon season here in southern Utah and, and most of the state. And so the threat does rise this time of the year. So uh, our report, we, we've done what's called a soil burn severity map. And so that's our, our first kind of science product that we have delivered is, is that um, soil burn severity. That, that then drives the other analyses we do, the other hydrological modeling, the, the, like, for example, the flood modeling the debris flow modeling, all that stuff kind of bases off or hinges off of the soil burn severity map. 
we do create a report, but that's mostly a, a funding request report that gets submitted to our store service leadership, and they approve funding for any kind of treatment prescriptions we might uh, prescribe on this fire. So that's what the report will be is kind of a, what's happened on this fire and what can we do to help mitigate that risk. Now, now the burn severity, um, what can you share with our listeners about how bad it is or, you know, like how good it is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's both, right? Most fires are, are, are both good and bad. It's never good when we lose private property or any kind of structures. And certainly it's, um, heartbreaking to see homes that were lost in Pat Creek. Um, so um, let me be very clear about that. that. That's very sad to see and very unfortunate. But as you go up the slope and the higher elevations up Geyser Pass, for example, a lot of that was a fairly healthy burn. Um, and the forest hasn't burned in many years in this area at those higher elevations. And, and from a forest ecology perspective, an occasional fire is pretty healthy for most forest ecosystems, and that's what we saw up on the higher elevations. Um, we didn't see a lot of high severity on this fire. Like 2% of the land that we mapped in this fire was considered high severity. But we had a lot of moderate severity, and moderate and high both have a pretty similar hydrologic response, meaning um, there's still a threat for floods and debris flows, even in the moderate severe fire. So we have a decent amount of acres that are of moderate or severe that have some, some definite um, concerns and things we're thinking about. Our biggest concerns will be on the lower elevation side where um, these watersheds do bleed out into private lands, the Pat Creek area. We don't have the budget authority or uh, um, jurisdictional authority to do anything to private lands, but we have a great um, state-based post-fire wildfire team They'll come in and work with private landowners and um, talk through solutions that they can find to kind of help mitigate the risk on their lands as well. Yeah, you know, in the, those areas that you found, you know, moderate to severe burn, um, you know, what are the different characteristics of a fire that could cause that? You know, I've I've heard from people in the know about fire, you know, how a fire burns really fast in an area or a fire might burn really hot in an area. So what are the conditions that are, are creating those those different levels of severity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, in, a, in a like a thick forested environment, like on the higher elevations like Geyser Pass area, those are all big conifer trees or aspens. And what we like to see in a lot of those cases is a low underburn where it comes through and burns the understory. Um, it removes what we call ladder fuels, which is short, you know, the, the ground level to five, six feet up that will potentially carry a fire up higher. We don't want necessarily a canopy consumption. We don't want the fire to get up in the tops of the trees and consume the trees because then you expose the soil to potential um, flooding risk and those kinds of things. And most of that area up there was, was like that. There was little pockets of, of um, canopy consumption here and there, but a lot of it was an understory burn, mm. which is fairly healthy for most environments. In the lower elevation stuff, what we see is uh, the severe fires are caused by um, when the fire comes to an area and it persists. It stays in an area for a while, and what it does is it cooks the soil. You know, that burns like all the, the needles and twigs and stuff on the ground. We call it duff and litter that's on the forest floor that burns that stuff and exposes the, the mineral soil or exposes the soil that we're, we're seeing. And the risk there is that when, when it rains, then it, it washes off. Naturally, we've got tree branches and leaves and needles that provide that barrier between raindrops and the soil. And so we don't get many floods. 
But when you burn that stuff off, then the soil says, hey, there's nothing holding me back anymore. And the rain has a much greater ability to, to wash that soil away. So those are the things we look at for the severity. Um, it doesn't always necessarily, like vegetation severity or mortality does not always translate to soil severity. You might burn a tree, but the soil wasn't affected much. And so we actually take that into account and look at those things differently. Um, and the soils are a pretty big indicator of how we're going to deal with flash floods and debris flood moving forward, though. You know, you mentioned, you know, um, that other sciences like, you know, hydrology, that sort of um, level of analysis will be forthcoming. I'm assuming we can expect some impact to our watershed, but do we know yet, like, how much? Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, not completely yet. We're, we're getting close to having a we call this an emergency assessment. <clears throat> this is not a master's thesis level or, or a dissertation level of, of scientific analysis, given the short time frame we, we uh, have. But we're getting close to a, an emergency assessment, preliminary assessment of the severity, and then, therefore, the other aspects, the hydrologic response, which is the flooding. Debris flow stuff, and our USGS partners help out with that, the debris flow potential. And then we also do um, a soil science analysis to say what's the, the threat of erosion, you know, what kind of sedimentation are we going to get downstream. Um, those are the kind of the science products that we're working on, and we're, we're getting there. We'll, we'll be close in a few days on that. Um, and then that drives, okay, now that we've seen what might happen with the next specific storm, what do we need to do about our roads? You know, do we need to close mm. roads, which is a, a pretty good treatment is to actually just close an area because it's too dangerous for people to be in there. Or do we actually go in and do some engineering and replace culverts or remove culverts because they're going to get plugged anyways? You know, those are the things we think through as we get to one of these fires. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes for us. And, um, you know, is there anything else that uh, you might find interesting to impart about uh, the BEAR team, what it's found, or what people in Moab can expect in the coming days and weeks? Yeah, I think a, a word of caution. I think it, it's going to be an interesting thing for people to want to go see, right? They haven't seen many fires in this mountain range for years, and so they want to go up and see it. Um, it's not a very safe place to be. Uh, burned trees are weakened, and any kind of wind, which you often do in high mountain passes like Geyser Pass or those high elevations, those trees will fall down in, in a snap, and it's very, very, very dangerous to be in those situations. So as much as you might not like uh, a local land manager, whether it's Forest Service or BLM, or it doesn't matter the agency, um, if they say an area closure, um, it's for public safety reasons. Even on the Pat Creek side, where there's no like, there isn't a ton of tall trees that have burned and would cause that have that concern. The concern we have is if um, you're up on the South Pass Road on that side of the fire, um, and we have a storm come through, it might blow out the road. And you mm. could be trapped up above the blowout and not be able to get out on your UTV or your truck or whatever you're in. So um, closures are, are unfortunate, of course. We want everybody to access public land. But just be aware that there might be closures for, for safety reasons that make a lot of sense, honestly. So be careful when you're out there. If you're walking through a burn scar, uh, be aware that trees, uh, their root structures burn too. So it might look like it's a nice, steady, flat ground. But as you walk, you might fall into some holes that are inches to feet deep. Um, so watch out for those ankle breakers if you do go out there, um, but be very careful that a burned land is a lot different than an unburned forest, and it's, uh, it's a new um, landscape for most people and uh, much more dangerous than they're expecting, I think. 
Jess Clark from the U.S. Forest Service and the Burned Area Emergency Response Team on the Pat Creek Fire. Clark and the U.S. Forest Service say the burn severity map will become public at some point. As soon as it does, we will update the show notes of today's news on our website and podcast, as well as kzmu.org slash updates. And now let's head to our weekly newsreel, where we speak with reporters about their latest stories of our local area. Moab's elected officials enacted several ordinances this year aimed at reducing noise levels in the valley. Doug McMurdo at the Times Independent asked locals if they've noticed a difference. This was a story that uh, Mayor Emily Niehaus uh, brought to my attention. She called me Tuesday afternoon um, just to observe that uh, to her it had grown noticeably quieter with uh, OHVs in the valley, and she attributed that to uh, a recent decisions uh, the council and the Grand County Commission made regarding lowering the speed limits and setting a decibel limit on how loud vehicles can be on the street within the city limits. And she also credited local vendors, OHV riders, and you know the community at large. Uh, Her observation was where she lives, uh, she's got real close proximity to Mill Creek, which by virtue of it turning into Sand Flats Road, um, Mm -hmm. it's heavily traveled with OHVs. And we were sitting in her backyard and it was clearly quiet. She Mm -hmm. says she still hears um, hums uh, in the morning and in the evening, but by and large, it seems to her to be a lot quieter. So um, I spoke to the mayor's neighbor, Josie Kovash, and Josie has a different opinion. She has a two-story house, and she has a brand-new baby. She doesn't have any way, any sound barriers between her and Mill Creek. Mm, I see. So that, that noise is constant. She says it's not uncommon to hear them at 1 p.m. You mean 1 a.m.? 1 a.m., yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> she says she hears them when she goes to bed, she hears them when she wakes up, and she hears them in the afternoon when she tries to nap with her baby. So there's that. I also went on the... Um, uh, the private Make Moab Quiet Again mm-hmm. uh, Facebook page, and I asked members of that group uh, if they felt it would be, had been getting quieter, mm-hmm. and uh, unanimously uh, the answer was no. Um, and people are also very upset with the dual speed limits. One guy says it was absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So there's still some anger there. However, I also spoke to uh, Scott McFarland, of um, High Point Hummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says that he believes that it's working. He believes the speed limit more than anything is working. And they've made these custom keychains that has reminders for operators that the speed limit is uh, 15. And um, he might get a nominee for being quote of the year. He says, um, I'd like to tattoo the speed limit on their forehead, but there's limits on what you can do to educate people. But, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I would also like to point out that um, I live in close proximity to uh, Rim Village. And during the heavy season, it's not uncommon to have 20, 30, 40 trailers and trucks that haul Mm -hmm. OHVs to town from from other places uh, parked on that main street um, that separates uh, Rim Village. In the last week, there might be two or three trailers. So I think there's fewer people. Uh, in town than mm-hmm. we're used to. I imagine that's going to change uh, this holiday weekend. But sure. uh, they're looking at record travel, and I imagine a lot of them will be coming to Moab. So whatever we had, this little lull in activity, it's probably going to come to an end this weekend. Always interesting, though, to get this anecdotal you know, responses from the community and whether or not they're perceiving a difference. 
based on Moab cities and Grand County's um, various noise ordinances and yeah. speed limits. Now, of course, the big question is enforcement of those noise ordinances and whether, you know, how, how much training is still needed for law enforcement um, in the city and the county until they can be enforced. Yeah, and I just don't know if we have... Um the personnel to enforce, even if we have the technology and the and the will to actually do it. I, I have to say, you know, all, everybody's observations, from the mayors to the people on Facebook to, to Mr. McFarland at, at High Point Hummer, I, th- I think it's all anecdotal. And here's my anecdotal take on it. I think that uh, 99% of the people that are in town on OHVs are trying not to be a jerk, but not everybody's trying not to be a jerk. Some people are going out of their way to be a jerk, and that's always going to create problems. I mean, the problem is, is the vehicles are noisy. You know, there are plenty of jerks on the road in other vehicles as right. well, but well, they're not nearly as loud. If, if you look at the photograph of the of the, the motorcyclist that I put on the front page to go uh-huh. with this story, uh, I had to, like, put my uh, my hand behind my ear to even hear his motor. So I know that you can make a, a, a quiet, quieter motor. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks for the update on that, Doug. Where else do you want to take us? What else would you like to highlight in the Times Independent? Well, I know it's no time to make a joke, but this is a, an issue that, or an addition that's really hot off the presses. We've, <laughs> no. we've got fires. We've got fireworks. We've got fire restrictions. And we have an after-fire report that uh, reporter Carter Poppy put together on Pat Cregan, uh, what the scientists are looking at in terms of runoff, water quality, flooding, um, soil erosion, all of the things that you need to worry about uh, after, after a major fire like this. Okay, so the general sense, I mean, there are more details in the Times Independent, but the general sense is please do not shoot off any fireworks and please uh, respect all fire restrictions, which we are in stage two, which means there are no campfires allowed on public lands. Yeah, and I would I would just remind everybody that it doesn't really matter what you think of fireworks or anything. The, the fact is, uh, the undeniable fact is that conditions out there are more ripe for uh, major fires than they've been in nearly a century, and uh, we need to keep that in mind. Okay. Where else do you want to take us next? Let's go to Saturday night at Swanee Park. You want to be there or be square because you can uh, <laughs> you can watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's always best to show this movie early in the summer so the kids don't get any ideas when, <laughs> when it's time to go back to school. But Ferris Bueller's Day Off, along with the beer garden and other goodies, is going to take place uh, after dark Saturday. And then Sunday, the, the city and the chamber... Uh, they have a whole day planned of all kinds of activities, including a, a dunk tank. I know that Emily Niehaus, previously we spoke about her, and Grand County Commission Chair Mary McGann are all going to take turns in the dunk tank. So I imagine the lines are going to be a little bit long for those two. And also Taryn Kay, school district superintendent, is also going to take a, a, a turn in the dunk tank. And there's going to be a fireworks show, obviously, um, after dark. But before that, you've got... Uh, a band called Shuffle is going to perform Sunday night before the show. And the Grand County High School mountain biking team is having a fundraising dinner. And the high school's art club is having a fundraising lunch. So uh, bring some cash and uh, uh, fill up your stomach and, and give to a good cause at the same time. Wow, it sounds like there's so much going on this weekend. Like you said, all around uh, Swanee City Park Saturday and Sunday. I think I'm most looking forward to seeing the dunk tank. I don't know if you're going to... 
get in line. No, I will be doing my professional obligation of photographing those who have the courage to get into the night tank. Well, I'm happy to, you know, hold your camera, Doug, if okay. you want to get in we, we can talk about okay. it. Okay. We can talk about it. It might be so hot that I will want to do that. Right. So. Finally, I know that you wanted to mention, um, you know, the Times Independent has this segment or uh, series of articles called Tales of Trails. And I know you wanted to, to talk about the one that's in, in this week's edition. Yeah, reporter Carter Poppe uh, did some of his best writing that, that I've seen. Well, here's the headline. The time I almost killed a friend on the whole enchilada. But it's a really, it's a cautionary tale about the importance of bringing more water than you need uh, anywhere you go out in Moab, uh, no matter what you're doing, but especially when you're on a, a mountain biking trail in the heat of summer uh, and there's no no easy water to be found. You need to make sure you bring enough for yourself. Always good to, to take reminders about water. I know we spoke before we, we started recording that I'm always paranoid that I, I want to make sure I have enough water in case I get stuck somewhere or something unexpected yeah, happens. Yeah, I um, I had a pint in, uh, in, a, con- in a container that uh, I had misplaced, and I was really, really getting desperate. This was uh-huh. a couple summers ago, and um, I found it after looking like three times in my pack, and it was just underneath a, a pair of socks that uh-huh. spare socks that I had in there and I was no never so happy to, to see, see it to like see an it. old friend right <laughs> oh we're gonna get to know each other Doug McMurdo editor at the Times Independent subscription info and more coverage can be found at moamtimes.com Areas that experience wildfires in the West are often places that people visit to recreate. This intersection of outdoor recreation and wildfire is something Moab Sun News reporter Anastasia Huffam got interested in with the Pack Creek Fire. Anastasia highlights this coverage from their latest edition. Just as the West in general has been drying up these past couple of years, we've been having more and more wildfires. Um, and also, like, alongside that, you know, um, environmental angle, we have more and more people coming to visit these spaces. And a lot of these people kind of don't know, you know, that they can't light a fire or that or what the certain restrictions may be. Or maybe they don't know that they have to put their fire completely out. So with that kind of double-edged sword of you have drier weather, drier conditions, and maybe more careless or ignorant tourists that leads to more wildfires and with that you know a lot of areas might get shut down and as I was talking to um, people for this article you know I was talking to Brian Murdoch of our forest service and he said you know like we got really lucky this time with the Pat Creek fire not damaging a lot of mountain biking trails not really damaging a lot of uh, walking trails of course you know Moonlight Meadows and Lake Clark were damaged but in general you know the whole enchilada is fine and he was saying like we got really lucky um, because if the whole enchilada had not been fine, you know, that would have been a hit to our mountain biking community in town. Um, so I think that's really what made me kind of think about it. I talked to Red Tail Air as well as Jackson Zollner, their chief pilot, and he was saying, you know, like we had people cancel their tours because of the wildfire smoke because obviously from the air. You can't see um, all these natural wonders uh, from the air if it's so smoky outside. I think it's going to be you know, something we talk about more and more because, you know, unfortunately, inevitably, this will kind of happen again. Like, I do think we will keep having these fires and keep thinking what industry is going to suffer next. I think it's kind of like, I think we got lucky. I think that's why I was kind of thinking that cutting it close was a good title for that article because it was like, well, this time, you know, it's it's okay. And we got really lucky, but next time we don't necessarily know. So I think it's kind of a, 
you know, keep it on, keep us on our toes and really keep being careful as these conditions worsen and as more and more people come to Utah. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I wonder if some of these outfitters and businesses are now sort of factoring that in as a possibility, especially as we continue to have drought conditions year after year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, the people who had to evacuate, people whose homes are endangered and the wildlife, you know, that's what was hurt by the Pat Creek fire. That comes first, but I thought this was a really interesting, you know, I guess kind of sub angle to look at. And I think I think it's something we're going to keep talking about, you know, um, and the article I kind of talk about the Grizzly Creek fire from last year and how people could not go to Hanging Lake near Glenwood, Glenwood Springs. Mm-hmm. And Glenwood Springs, the city had to pay, you know, $86 million, which obviously they did get covered by grants and such. So it wasn't all, all, all on them. Um, but in restoration efforts to get Hanging Lake kind of back to where it was, and it closed in August of 2020 and just reopened in April. So, you know, it's like, when is that going to happen to a space in Moab? We don't, I guess we don't know. And it's kind, of, it's kind of gloom and doom. I don't want it to be gloom and doom, but I do think it's kind of like a hard truth to realize, like, this is something that we do need to consider moving into uh, in, in the future. Climate change affecting uh, the economy in a, in a real way. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, a, I think it's just something really interesting to keep looking at as, um, you know, it gets drier and as more and more people come to Utah specifically, we are the fastest growing state in the nation, according to uh, the 2020 census. So it's just something to keep an eye on and something to be aware of, I think. Well, thank you so much, Anastasia. Anything else to mention about this intersection of the fire and outdoor recreation? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think so. I think um, I'm really glad that obviously the whole enchilada is going to be okay, that these other um, really beautiful spaces are going to be okay. Um, Brian Murdoch of the Forest Service did mention that, you know, obviously fires are not great. We don't want them, but um, the forest will definitely bounce back and have some nice soil to get into, and it will it will all be okay. <laughs> it will all work out this time. I think it's just, you know, again, like I said, keeping an eye on it. Now, um, speaking of fire, um, you have a big article on the front page about fireworks being restricted on the 4th of July. This is not that straightforward, as straightforward as maybe many of us want, to be, want it to be. So can you, can you outline uh, the restrictions for us? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not as straightforward as I thought it would be either. I uh-huh. definitely had to go through a couple of different sources and websites to kind of figure out, okay, what what is what are we looking at here? So um, right now, southeastern Utah is under a stage two fire ban. Um, that's kind of like an interagency decision between the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the National Park Service, the state of Utah, and others. And basically what stage two means is like no kind of open flame. So there's no campfires, you can't smoke in outdoor areas near dried vegetation, etc. Um, fireworks are also prohibited under stage one restrictions, which is what you know, the Moab area was under before we moved into stage two restrictions um, this past week. But Moab City also announced that they are restricting fireworks. The only time you can discharge fireworks is between July 2nd through 5th. And those are only in certain areas. Um, and Grand County passed some similar restrictions to that. And Moab will be, you know, having its own uh, light show from Lions Back on July 4th at dark. So um, it's really interesting. And even our own governor is confused. He's kind of said this before because um, state law does not allow for like a full state fire ban, um, mm-hmm. even though the governor has said that he wants one, that he, the legislature just isn't really open to that right now. So it's kind of a gray area for municipalities like Moab around the state where it's like okay we want to have more specific fire restrictions but like an all-out ban might not be allowed under state law so it's just been kind of hard for 
local cities, towns, and counties to kind of figure out what they want their firework restrictions to look like. But, you know, for Moab specifically, fireworks are prohibited throughout all of Moab, um, including parks, public trails, paths, and particularly within um, Pat Creek and Mill Creek, and between 20 feet from any residence. And discharge of fireworks, again, is only allowed um, from June 2nd to 5th. And after that, again, they are back under the no fly. They will not uh, be okay. Uh, just mm-hmm. as I think another effort to make sure that we don't light a lot of our dry vegetation on fire again. Thank you so much for uh, breaking that down. You know, I, I know you probably watched uh, the governor's press conference on Wednesday. What I thought was so interesting is that all these elected officials are hoping that, you know, a community fireworks show under, you know, professional conditions, hopefully with firefighters on hand, will satisfy the public for their firework, I guess, itch. That was kind of interesting to me. No, definitely, because the kinds, I mean, I grew up in Alabama, and, you know, we, it's not nearly as dry there, and we don't usually have um, these kinds of restrictions, so, you know, we're kind of setting off, you know, what have you, kind of anything Mm -hmm. that we can get our hands on, you know, and fireworks are big, and they're kind of on every side of the highway, so, you know, no matter what, like, Roman candles aren't allowed, flash dolls aren't allowed, comets, mortars, firecrackers, bottle and aerial rockets, like, those are not allowed, and I remember thinking that's so interesting, and I think it's a really interesting angle, like you said, that, you know, people might be like, okay, this was kind of lame, I think (laughs) that's definitely a risk that we're running here, but um, I do hope that people see that, like, it might be a better idea to leave fireworks out to the professionals on this one. And, you know, maybe the next time to go to a wetter, less fire risky place, they can shoot off fireworks to their heart's content. <laughs> right. Um, also interesting, of course, as you outlined in the article, too, how policy sort of um, isn't really catching up with um, what a lot of people think would be common sense, which is to, you know, ban personal fireworks. It's like you said, it need, it needs an action from the state legislature, which is a, a political process. Yeah, definitely one that takes a long time, um, for sure. Because it's, you know, this legislative attorney that I was kind of looking at his legal analysis about fireworks that he wrote for uh, Utah State Legislators, he said, attempting to prohibit fireworks throughout an entire municipality would violate both the letter and intent of statutory limitations that are already set within state law. So it's just really confusing. And it's, um, I think it was kind of funny to hear the governor be like, listen, I want it to be banned statewide too, but that's just not something that he can do with his executive power. So I think it's, again, you know, just an interesting, maybe on a smaller scale, just kind of watching the, the gears of democracy turn, as I kind of said about the outdoor and rec piece. I do think this will continue to be a conversation that we have every summer um, as the 4th of July approaches. And we're like, hey, we want to set off fireworks. And it's like, hey, if you do, the state might burn down. So I think that <laughs> it's going to be something we keep talking about. And, you know, maybe in the next couple of years, we will see more unilateral um, legislation about firework bans um, in the state of Utah. Well, thanks again, Anastasia. And it probably is worth mentioning that there are, are definitely other ways for humans to cause fire, including, you know, dragging your chains on the roadway or, you know, even having a, a, a tool hit a rock in a yard. You know, a lot of a lot of things can, can start fire and it's just good to be aware of those things and uh, help our neighbors out by uh, trying to avoid certain activities this time of year. Yeah, definitely. I think the one that hit me when I was kind of reading through a list of things that, you know, Utah Fire Info, Info and other agency experts say was parking your car on dry vegetation. I thought that that one kind of clicked for me. I was like, oh, wait, like I've done that, you know, mm. like when like less warm outside, sure. But, you know, when you go out to camp or you're, right. you know, hanging out outside for the day, like I've definitely parked my car 
over, you know, in a space that was near, you know, something that could have caught fire. So I think that's something that really made me, like, think and be like, okay, like, we're not doing that again. That is not while it is this dry in the state. Fireworks are not the only, not the only way to endanger, you know, our fellow neighbors and wildlife and natural spaces. But I think they're just one of the flashier ones, especially as the holiday approaches. Anastasia Huffam, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more coverage can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with reporters about the most recent stories they've covered in our area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.